Keeping Democracy Alive with Bert Cohen. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're really seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Uh, An old politician who understood the dignity of humanity. Boy, what a year we have this year. One of them is not particularly dignified. The 2016 presidential campaign is certainly in a league of its own. On one hand, we have someone who brags that he is a multi-billionaire and somehow many working class people who are most severely affected by the extreme wealth inequality flock to eagerly support him. And on the other hand, we had an acknowledged socialist who came very close to becoming uh, the Democratic nominee, Bernie Sanders, directly focused on a rigged system which enables this extreme inequality. Of course, we ended up with a Democratic nominee with whom the wealthy are comfortable, but at least she is talking about wealth inequality and talking about making taxes more fair. A few years ago, the issue of wealth inequality was jolted into the headlines through the Occupy Wall Street movement. Now, as a result, everybody knows what is meant by the 1%. Growing up in the 1950s, as I did, I remember when there was something called a middle class. It was very large, and it was nearly universally assumed that if you work hard and play by the rules, that economic mobility was available to all. The American economy was widely perceived to be relatively fair. But my, how things have changed. There is frustration and anger that our government is not so much our government anymore, that instead it is owned and controlled by the very richest few. The prospect of a class war is indeed very frightening. Think of the bloodletting in Russia back in 1917. But this is America. Is a class war inevitable? Are all rich people on one side and everybody else on the other? Our guest today has a unique perspective on the historic challenge we now face. If you've been following the issue that we're talking about, you may know of Chuck Collins. His new book is called Born on Third Base. A one percenter makes the case for tackling inequality, bringing wealth home, and committing to the common good. Former Secretary of Robert Reich says of this book, Born on Third Base offers a clear and compelling case for why the privileged and powerful must act to reverse widening inequality of income, wealth, and political power in America. Chuck Collins, thank you so much for being back with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Hey, Bert, great to be with you. As always, Chuck Collins, if you don't know, is a researcher, campaigner, storyteller, and writer based at the 
really good Institute for Policy Studies, where he co-edits inequality.org. He's written extensively on wealth inequality in previous books like 99 to 1, Wealth in Our Commonwealth with Bill Gates Sr., and Economic Apartheid in America. He's also written in The Nation magazine, The American Prospect, and numerous others uh, and uh, magazines and news outlets. He's co-founded numerous initiatives, including Wealth for the Common Good, which is now merged with Patriotic Millionaires, I love that title, United for a Fair Economy, and Divest Invest. He's also a leader in the transition movement and a co-founder of the Jamaica Plain New Economy Transition and the Jamaica Plain Forum, both in the Boston area uh, in which he lives, Jamaica Plain, JP. Well, again, Chuck Collins, thanks for being with us. You've written a lot of articles and other books. What is the purpose of this one? Please tell us about the title. Why did you write Born on Third Base? Well, you know, as you know, I've been working on these inequality issues for a while, but I actually, you know, I grew up in the 1%, and I kind of watched the, the, the political debate, and I'm thinking, well, you know, I should tell more of my own story, and I should tell the stories of other people I know who are in the 1%, who are also extremely concerned about these growing inequalities and are doing something about it. Because I think, you know, we're, we're kind of in a stuck place, you know. It used to be that if you brought up inequality people would just presume you were like, oh, you want to redistribute wealth and you're a socialist and uh, you hate rich people. You know, and I was like, well, actually, uh, those are my people. I grew up yeah. in that. that th- those are my family and my neighbors, you know. So I guess I was just trying to bring a little more nuance or thoughtfulness to how we tackle these inequalities. And I would think, you know, it's 300 million Americans or so, that virtually every other American would love to just inherit a lot of money without working. Tell us, please, about who your great-grandfather was and, and what happened to you when you turned 26. Well, I'm, I am the great-grandson of the meatpacker Oscar Mayer. Uh, my dad used to say bringing home the bacon had a different meaning in our family. <laughs> um, and, you know, uh, that meant that you know three generations later I was in a you know living growing up in an affluent family and my parents created an education trust fund for me and I went to college without any debt and uh, this was in the early 80s in the go-go uh, early years of the Reagan uh, tax cuts and the wealth that I had in my name just I remember watching it double over about a five six year period mm. and thinking I didn't do anything. Meanwhile, as I was learning, sort of, you know, I was working with uh, mobile home residents in New Hampshire who were trying to buy their mobile home parks. I was sort of seeing how everybody else's wages were starting to grind to a halt in terms of, uh, you know, they were flattening out. And so I just personally, um, at, at a certain point, made a decision that I just didn't want to have this inherited wealth and that I was aware of things that needed it more. And it felt like the right thing for my own development to not sort of have to, you know. So I understand that people might look at it and go, geez, I wish I was there. But when you're born on third base and you kind of want to make your own way in the world, it's somewhat of an obstacle. So it was both sort of a personal and a social change perspective where I decided to give the wealth away. And where did that wealth go? Well, it went to... Uh, several foundations around the country. One was the Haymarket People's Fund uh-huh. that funds uh-huh. grassroots organizing in New England. Yes. Uh, there was a fund called the Solidar- Solidago Fund, which um, 
funded uh, leadership in communities of color. So, and I gave it some of it to organizing work in the southeast that mm. uh, they they could use the help. So, I kind of spread it around, and uh, it went to foundations where they made the decisions. So I didn't sit around micromanaging the uh-huh. decision making. It just seemed like that was what what I should do. And what did your parents think of your decision? Well, I actually sort of consulted them on the way and said, you know, here's what I would like to do, and. Um, you know, I had really good conversations with them, and they, of course, any parent is concerned, you know, they want to make sure their child is going to be okay, right. and, you know, I was able to basically say, you know, I'm going to be okay, and of course, there's always things that bad that can happen where it would be nice to have the money, but then I would be in the same boat as 99% of all the people I knew, I would have to get some help, and that actually maybe I would have a greater stake in making sure that we have a better safety net in our society so that you don't have to be rich to be worried, you know, to be buffered from a job loss or an illness or an mm. injury, et cetera. Boy, and I would think that's entirely possible. And I, I do remember back in the late 1960s, there was uh, something called the National Welfare Rights Organization, which had as its goal making sure everybody had just the basic essentials, food and shelter, you know, and I don't know if they talked about health care. And, and its founder, George Wiley, died very mysteriously. But, I, you know, there's, there is a lot of money in this country. There's a lot of really wealthy people. I mean, a lot of us have traveled around and seen, you know, people with uh, Ferraris and things and these giant yachts. And they're doing uh, exceedingly well in terms of money. I don't know about psychologically and emotionally. But uh, being in your position, someone who was born on third base, you have found extreme levels of inequality in our society personally painful. Can you give us some examples? Well, I think it's it's hard not to feel something if you uh, are paying attention and you're open-hearted to just see the, the grotesque inequalities of opportunity, people who work extremely hard and can't get anywhere, people who have a one setback and they're devastated financially and and uh you know so that by you know you meet people by the age of 20 you realize wow their life trajectory is heading in in a not a very good direction and there's not much they can do about that and i find, i personally find that painful i mean the other thing is i think uh, and you alluded to this it just doesn't have to be this way um i don't think it's really in the interests of even the rich right now to allow these inequalities to keep going the way they are. I mean, 20 years from now, we're going to be like Brazil, you know, with a fabulously wealthy elite living behind gated communities and sending their kids to school with bodyguards or whatever. And then we're going to have this growing ranks of, of, of precarious and, and, and of poverty. Yeah. And um, so I don't, I, my, the reason I wrote Born on Third Base is I kind of want to go out and say, listen, folks, uh, if, you're in the, if you're wealthy, if you're affluent, if you are in the 1% or have a lot of wealth in this society, look at where we're going. Do you really want to live in this kind of society? Hmm. If not, there's something you can do about it. Um, and then I would say to the people in the 99%, yeah, you know, there's some... There's some jerky people in the top 1% who are using their wealth and power to rig the rules, but that's not everybody. Right. And in fact, there's a lot of allies out there. And there's a lot of people who are kind of waiting to be invited to do something better and more meaningful. Um, so I think that's the moment we're in.
It certainly is a, a precarious and interesting time. And uh, again, uh, I'm part of the baby boom generation. And, you know, back then we, we all had the impression that there was great social mobility. We accepted that. We did not feel locked in at all by class or wealth. I, I, it's so different now. Any, any sense of, of when that changed? I mean, it, it seems to be radically, radically different. You know, um, Bert, you're, you know, I think you and I grew up with the sense that the United States was a socially mobile country. Yes. You could be born in the bottom fifth, and you could get the good life and, and mm. have the American dream. And what, by the American dream, I mean the most simple, you know, being able to retire before you, di- you, you die, yeah. uh, mm. have some savings, own your own home, take a vacation, uh, buy, leave something for your kids. I mean, these, are, this isn't, you know, these aren't huge aspirations. And here's the bad news. If you want to live that American dream and you're not born wealthy in America, you are better off uh, being in Canada. Uh, you're better off being in Northern Europe, where social mobility is now dramatically greater than the United States. And the reason for that is that they, they invest in early childhood education. They invest in making sure there's sort of a ladder of opportunity that people can climb. Hmm. At the same time that we're died disinvesting uh, they're making those investments. And again, we don't have to, be, you know, I think we should be looking to the Nordic countries and to Canada and to see what we can learn about how to raise the floor. Mm-hmm. Because I think we don't, we underestimate the stress involved in living in a society where if you're, you're one job loss or one divorce or one illness away from destitution, and I think even the wealthy feel that insecurity. And that they hold on to the we hold on to the wealth that we have even tighter because we live in an insecure society. Hmm. But it just doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. If you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Alive, Bert Cohen, your host here, and an old friend, Chuck Collins. His new book is Born on Third Base. A one percenter makes the case for tackling inequality, bringing the wealth home, and committing to the common good. And I, I wonder how. It's hard to believe that people who live in gated communities, for example, could be okay with that. Having, I mean, the prospect, as you said, uh, like in Brazil, you have to send your kids to school with a bodyguard. I mean, that, you know, who who does that help? And I mean, there's gated communities, uh, and and I I wonder about this isolation. You know, I I can't help but think that many very wealthy people are are not entirely comfortable with their sense of being different and feeling isolated. What, what do you know about that? Well, I know lots of people, yep. um, and it's not obviously true for everybody, but I think that one of the things that happens is as you get wealthier, the more you're sort of told that the rest of the world is, is not a safe place, hmm. you need to pull back. I mean, this even happened to uh, Michael Jordan uh, in his, his own, you know, biography, autobiography, talking about becoming more wealthy and, bec- and his world shrinking uh, because it was, he was worried everybody was after his money. Um, but, but the other thing is that, that uh, you know, some of my friends, I would say, grew up in wealthy families, and if they were going to write their memoir, it would be called uh, Orphans with, with Parents. You know, hmm. sometimes wealth gets in the way of connections between people. And being in a community where people depend on each other means you show up with your sort of vulnerability and your needs and you have to ask for help. 
And that's real how authentic community takes place. Well, if you can buy or buy your buy or purchase your way through everything you need, it means you've never actually had to ask anybody to help you fix your car, take care of your kids because you're you've you're paying for all that. What does that do? It means that you are kind of apart from the co- from the community of mutual aid and connection uh, that is the world. And um, so I, I I think that you know part of my message of to the wealthy is come home bring your wealth home take it out of the global financial casino and put it to work in communities where there's real jobs and businesses and be part of that community put your stake down show up with your vulnerability and ask for help and 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 share the wealth and pay your taxes you know those are all part of to me what it means to come home and unfortunately a lot of wealthy people have delinked to a point where it's really not even good for them. Hmm, not even good for them. Say more about that before I get to the next question. How is it not even good well, for them? Well, because, uh, you know, the more I understand our purpose for being here on, on Earth, it's, it's to be in relationship. It's to yes. be in connection with other human beings and with nature. And, yeah. and uh, the, the more the, the money gets in the way of that. Uh, you, yeah. you you can't buy those relationships. You have to be connected to people. So it's it's and people start to wall off their hearts as well as living behind gated communities. They they you have in a, in an extremely unequal society, you have to work very very hard not to feel how awful this picture is. How how much people are suffering around us. You have to kind of wall yourself off. Well, that's that means you're you're not really sharing in the whole human experience, which has a lot of suffering and has a lot of joy. So I think people miss out on the joy. And I think, um, yeah, community is, is just, I mean, I've always thought it's extremely important. One of the uh, exciting prospects of the late 60s was th- that here was suddenly community uh, uh, starting to happen. You know, people could see that... Uh, you know, if if you you see black people in a white area, they say hello to one another, recognizing one another, and then we sort of did it on our own by having long hair and dressing differently. That's sort of a a, a sense of community somehow. And now, oh, I don't know. There's there's not a lot of community. I mean, people are. Uh, it's it's bad enough that we're all just sitting in front of our computers and not connecting with other people, but to have that sense of community. And uh, historians talked about. What what we uh, Americans missed, I think it was Hannah Arendt uh, about, uh, I may be wrong about that, that we were part of shtetls, part of communities before we came to America, and they the knew who you were. And now it's, it, it's, it's more difficult, certainly, feeling isolated. And yet, I can't imagine a lot of people who are living hand-to-mouth and, and have virtually no savings, which is the majority of people, feeling sorry <laughs> for rich people. I wonder about, uh, uh, you know, any kind of uh, lack of connection that there is there. I mean, uh, you know, wealthy people seeing poor people, people who are suffering. Uh, yeah, I think it's pretty common to think, oh, man, that, that it doesn't have to be that way. It shouldn't be that way. But what about the uh, uh, lack of uh, sympathy any you know average income people might have? How does that play itself out? Well, you know, um, 
I actually think, uh, you know, there's a little bit of an empathy deficit in our society. Uh, I totally understand, you know, I mean, look, you know, there's some, some guy bought, you know, a pharmaceutical company and jacked up the price of a drug 5,000%. I mean, how could we not be outraged with that kind of greed? But, but uh, on another level, you have to realize, like, wow, how disconnected do you have to be from humanity mm. and from other people's experience to do that? You know, like... I sort of, in the book, I, I mean, I understand this is a stretch, but I sort of encourage people, let's say, if you're in the 99% and you're looking at these super-rich folks, is to say, okay, some of them are unreachable. You know, uh, the Koch brothers are, you know, people who are there, but that is not necessarily the majority. And right, in fact, right. many people are as hungry for connection and meaning as everybody else, and they need to be invited to the table and included yeah. and uh you know think of us as your long lost cousins who 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 uh have returned from exile you know bring us back um so it sounds kind of corny but actually i think that's one thing i want people to take away is there are people who have a lot of resources that could make a huge difference in our communities they don't know how to do it they don't know where to plug in and they're lost, just like a lot of us, you know, are lost in terms of, you know, how do we make a difference in the world? So those are potential allies to whatever you're doing. If you care about a local environmental issue, you care about housing and employment issues. I mean, again, in New Hampshire, the New Hampshire Community Loan Fund, to me, is a place where people who care bring capital, lend it. You know, we just did the 105th resident mobile home cooperative buyout last month that makes a huge difference yeah. in the state of new hampshire that's and 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 all over new england uh and all over the country those yeah. kind of things actually make a difference that's an example of how wealth can come home and make a difference um so those are the stories i think we need to be telling more of well and and you bring up i mean there there's various different community loan funds like that, programs like you're involved in in Jamaica Plain, uh, where, yeah, it is local initiative. Now, I get swamped uh, with, uh, you know, mail asking for contributions. And there are always thousands, really, of worthy causes, really worthy causes, begging for money, competing fiercely with one another. And then when... A wealthy person does contribute. That action may have the effect of relieving any sense of guilt on the part of the rich person, which says, well, I've done something about it. I've done a little bit. You know, I tossed a a few crumbs here and there. They wouldn't quite put it that way. But and that that process, I wonder, kind of might reinforce the systemic inequality and the legitimacy of a system of a few having a lot and many having very little. And these charities, of course, depend on the kindness of strangers. You you write that anyone who criticizes the limitations of such charity is considered a skunk at a garden party. Yet you do criticize it. Tell us about that, your criticism there. Well, I do think it's very important for people to share, if they have a lot of surplus wealth, that they share it, that they give it to organizations, particularly organizations working to get at the root causes of problems. But I share what you said. You know, I think that now we have a, a charitable industrial complex where uh, 
creating a foundation is part of your tax avoidance strategy. And in some ways, the, the, the giving, the, the charitable gifts, sometimes compound inequalities. I could say more about that. But basically, found philanthropy and charity mm-hmm. is not a substitute for justice, and it's not a substitute for people paying their fair share of taxes. And uh, so you hear people talk about giving back, but giving back is always like, oh, I have a foundation, and it has my name on it, and I'm giving it to things, and now my name is on the buildings I'm giving. Mm-hmm. That's not what we mean. <laughs> that's not justice. I mean, that's, that's like, um, you know, vanity. Um, so, and, and, and meanwhile, you know, and we have actually have a study coming out in a month looking at how the inequalities in our society are affecting philanthropy. And the, the interesting trend is hmm. more and more people are creating foundations. They're reducing their taxes by giving to charitable foundations. But a lot of that giving is not terribly imaginative and actually kind of reinforces the status quo of the giver. Right. Meanwhile, lower-income people and middle-income people are able to give less and less. So charities that that depend on small donors are seeing a huge decline, mm. and there have there have and meanwhile found philanthropy or organizations that cater to the concerns of the wealthy. Let's let's say large museums and you know universities where you can get your name on a building yeah. are doing great. Well, what's wrong with this picture? And where are we heading here? You know, twenty years from now, you're gonna we're gonna have these every billionaire is gonna have a mega foundation. And our towns and and states and and country are going to be like, you know, holding bake sales to, to you know, to to reinvest in the, the infrastructure. Yeah, to, yeah, to, yeah, exactly. So, and that's that's an important point. Charitable giving does not do anything to build the infrastructure or rebuild or repair or maintain the infrastructure that's deteriorating around us. It's tax dollars. Yes. That do that. Yes, and and if you have a you know, again, it's it's depending on the on the kindness of strangers. I mean, Bill Gates Jr. I know you've worked with Bill Gates Sr., but you know they do a lot of good charitable things, and lots of people know that they do that. But yeah. whose whose decision making is it? I mean, isn't this supposed to be a a Republican form of government where you know republic of the people and a democracy? You know, depending on these the whims and and the you know kindness of strangers. Man, there's got to be a better way than that. And and I wonder how many, you know, people who are born on third base uh, feel the same way that, you know, you get hounded I mean, get for money all the time and you got to make decisions, you know, who gets how much and, and where and, and some don't get any money. But what about the idea of, you know, actually working on on justice, on having uh, the the dare I say the government get involved in in providing a floor and having say something as wildly radical as Medicare for all, you know, health care for all, you know that that it, it destroys people when they can't pay for that. I wonder about the the impetus for that, and there have been you know wealthy people who who have have talked about uh, uh, changing the priorities of where our tax dollars go. Well, I, yeah, I think that, again, that the philanthropic system does some things really well. Yes. It can be a place where you can pilot big ideas, but then to bring them to scale, you really need a, a robust uh, public sector. Mm. Um, it's just, 
you know, uh, people think, oh, we can we can solve problems of charity with or solve problems of poverty with charity. That is just not going to be the case. Right. Um, here's two reasons why ordinary folks who are who should care about billionaires creating foundations. One reason is that those foundations are, how do you say, they're, they're, they're accretions of private power <laughs> and, and, and not democratic decision-making. So right. if I have a billion dollars and I create, a found, I create the Chuck Foundation and I just give to the things I like to give to, right. Right. you know, I give to my alma mater and I give to the land conservancy that's buying the, you know, so it can buy up the the land around my house so I can protect my view, mm-hmm. or I give, I buy art and give it to museums, I'm actually reducing what I pay in taxes. Yes. And you, Bert, the taxpayer, are covering almost half. You're basically providing the matching funds for my gifts. And that's that's not a good use of the common common treasury. Yeah. Uh, so that's one reason. And the, other, and the other reason is that, yeah, that... that uh, we we subsidize it and it reduces taxes. Like in the fifties and sixties, when we built the infrastructure of this country, yeah. we taxed the wealthy. We built an interstate highway system. Yes, we built. Uh, we we help invest in building a middle class. Um, we're not going to reduce uh, the college debt issue by having billionaires give scholarships. Right. Yeah, it's far more systemic than that, and and. It does seem that the that the philanthropic model is a way of sort of pushing it off, you know, like saying, "Ah, we don't have to deal with that." We're, you know, we're guy, good guys. We give money where we want to give money, but it doesn't deal with the uh, systemic uh, problem. And you know, sometimes I know there there's been fears of uh, class war, you know, and that's 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 really scary. And you know, we know about bottom up class antagonism uh, expressed in anger against the rich. You know, oh, the rich people are bad. We've seen that throughout history, often with horrible, terribly bloody uh, situations. Uh, But you say there's two class wars. Tell us about the other, the top-down class war by the rich against the non-rich that, according to uh, billionaire Warren Buffett, the richest are winning. Well, yeah, the... the, I mean, obviously, there's... When you organize the, the the rules of the economy to funnel wealth to the top and then you basically scapegoat you know poor people and immigrants you are creating you're fomenting class war from the top down and then some people are going to be understandably enraged by that and they're going to resent the wealthy and believe that the wealthy are kind of like a different species or an alien species and therefore have no problem sort of attacking Mostly rhetorically. I mean, we're not in the we're not in the pitchfork pitchfork guillotine phase of history here. Not now. But you can uh-huh. see where it's going. You can sort of see where it's going. Um, I mean, I like to think in a polarized economy, where you have a growing gap between rich and poor, you have a polarized politics. Hmm. You have both a regressive populism, which is the sort of Donald Trump, mm-hmm. let's scapegoat you know new immigrants and people of color, yeah. blame them for the insecurity that people are feeling Oof. or you have a progressive populism a sort of bernie sanders thing let's look at the the billionaires and the rigged rules everybody who you know so that's the but it's the same problem which is we're we're pulling apart mm. as a society 
there's a terrific book by uh, the sociologist Arlie Hochschild called Strangers in Their Own Land. And it's about the Tea Party and about, you know, what's going on here. And one of her insights is, you know, most many, many of these folks who are in the Tea Party feel that they are waiting in line and the line is stalled and it's going backwards and other people are cutting in line and that those hmm. liberals are letting the immigrants and people of color cut in line. Uh. And so that's where that resentment comes from. But I would argue, hey, look, it's, you know, that the whole economy is stalled out. Every, everybody's standing in line. There's a lot of people color, people of color standing in line waiting for the line to move too. And we need to sort of look at the larger system uh, of how the economy now is, is tipped in favor of the wealthy. That will fix it. Once the line starts moving again, people won't be so uh, prone to being manipulated to scapegoat other people. Mm. And, oh my goodness, being uh, a history buff, whoa, does that bring back memories? You know, scapegoating mm-hmm. other people. I mean, after the First World War, Germany was in terrible economic condition. And so, obviously, the so-called populists back then uh, uh, manipulated it and uh, made, you know, ratcheted up the hate for the other. And frankly, we are seeing that now, and I find it terribly, terribly frightening. And, you know, not all rich people are bad. You know, they're not all greedy. Uh, And in my, you know, certainly my knowledge of history, which isn't great, but not all super wealthy people are are heartless. One thinks of of the Kennedys, particularly Ted Kennedy, who uh, he was a real champion, real champion for the poor and middle class. He wanted to make systemic change. Uh, Can you tell us about some really wealthy people who are working to end extreme inequality and and, and what is their motivation? Well, you know, um, there's, there is actually a really interesting history um, and actually, I worked in a uh, did an earlier book called Robin Hood Was Right. Oh yeah, tied to giving your money for social change, mm-hmm. and uh, we try to tell this history that you know there's there are often behind the scenes wealthy people supporting the civil rights movement, supporting mm-hmm. social movements, um, and I in 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 the in this new book, Born on Third Base, I tell stories of um, people who are very thoughtfully thinking about how to give their money how to support the Black Lives Matter movement, mm-hmm. how to um, uh, invest money in high-impact uh, ventures at the local level to, to, to build a healthy economy, talk about people who are leading the effort to take capital out of the fossil fuel sector, mm. invested in the new energy economy. So there's a lot of examples of that. And uh, I thought it was interesting you mentioned Ted Kennedy. I mean, I was thinking about, you know, we have what you could call born-on-third-base politicians, meaning that there are people who are, who are born into privileged circumstances. The ones we have to worry about are the ones who pretend that they got there on their own. Uh, you know, I think of George W. Bush, right. who um, obviously is from a very wealthy family, and his, you know, he would say, yeah, I'm here because of my performance, my, my results that I've gotten as a businessman. Uh, same thing with Mitt Romney. You know, uh, mm-hmm. he at one point said, "I didn't inherit anything." You know, I grew up and went. I I went to the same high school with Mitt Romney. His dad was the governor of Michigan and the CE, former CEO of American Motors. Right. He inherited a lot of wealth. He had a huge head start. Donald Trump. You know, oh, he minimizing. You know, the fact that he was born into a family that 
had a very well-connected real estate empire. That he, he, you know, all these people do something with their lives, but to minimize that advantaged head start is really a problem, as opposed to someone like Ted Kennedy, who said, you know, I, earned, I got my money the old-fashioned way, I inherited it. Right. He made a joke about it. He didn't pretend that he got there on his own. Um, so I think people telling true stories uh-huh. about how they got help uh, helps demystify this this national myth of deservedness we have. Oh, you're poor, <laughs> it's because you didn't work hard, you oh, didn't get up early, you're not as oh. smart. And you're rich, it's because you're virtuous and you got up early. You know, it's like it actually, no one in the society doesn't get help. Uh, sometimes we attach a stigma to it, and sometimes we pretend it's invisible and ignore it, but that's what a good society does. And you reminded me back in, in history in the 17th century when the uh, Puritans and others uh, had this uh, concept of the elect, that if you you know had a lot of money, you were clearly the elect. You deserved it. You were superior. I mean, Donald Trump believes it. He actually does believe that people who with, with money are, in fact, superior people, uh, that there's not equality. But I, I think that's a, I don't know, I, I think people are, are starting to, to question that. And uh, it's interesting, you do talk about in the book that uh, there's a chapter, let me just flip through it here, uh, about uh, what people can do to bring their wealth home, wealthy come home, uh, that uh, there's various ways uh, investments can be made that, that you know, barring a it doesn't look like we're going to get Bernie Sanders as president in 2016. I think that's a fair assumption. But if if he did, then I think that would be a real systemic change and there'd be some real uh, changes there. But barring that, seeing how that's not too likely, uh, that uh, there are things people with money can do and they can uh, read about it. In this uh, new book, Born on Third Base, uh, the uh, subtitle is a one percenter makes the case for tackling inequality, bringing the wealth home, and committing to the co- common good. We were talking about the Kennedys, and uh, of course, people uh, always like anecdotal stories. When you were on a book tour for Wealth in Our Commonwealth with your then co-author Bill Gates Sr., you had uh, a luncheon with several U.S. senators, and uh, apparently Ted Kennedy uh, asked you a question that provoked significant laughter from the other senators. What was that? Well, you know, we had gotten up and talked about why should we keep the inheritance tax? And we said, you know, it raises a lot of money, but it also puts a break on the buildup of hereditary wealth and power. And uh, said Senator Ted Kennedy sort of puckishly raised his hand. He said, I understand the importance of an estate tax as a way to raise revenue, uh, but I don't understand what you mean by hereditary wealth and power. I don't know what you mean. <laughs> He was, of course, making a joke. He understood that he was there a function of his advantages. You know, he didn't just walk in and run for office without a, you know, a father, a brother, a grandfather who were all very politically connected and wealthy. And you also talk about something called the Resilience Circle Movement. Please, what's, tell us about that and what's in it for wealthy people. Well, you know, if think back to, you know, 2008, you know, the the fall with the economic meltdown where people oh, were, yeah. jobs were plummeting, where, where people were very, very afraid. And I think one of the things we that came out of that was people realized, wow, 
A lot of us don't have any kind of mutual aid network. We don't know who we would turn to. Uh, now, this is less of a problem for low-income people where, you know, people survive because they have a sort of web of support or new immigrants. But a lot of formerly middle-class people at that moment felt very, very vulnerable, felt that they didn't have anything to fall back on. And, uh, we, you know, I was part of at that time, my own uh, church had formed what we called resilience circles. And people formed these circles all over the country, and they were sort of support groups where people got together and they sort of learned about what was happening in the economy, and they helped each other with mutual aid. And they, um, you know, in in the group I was in, people helped each other figure out how to live on less money, where they could cut cut their budgets, how they could network for jobs, where they could get uh, access to health insurance or, you know, medical help. It was, you know... It was just people helping each other. And, uh, you know, it's less, those movements are maybe less visible today, but there's still, you know, a huge percentage of the population that still hasn't felt uh, any kind of economic recovery, and uh, but also feel isolated. You know, we were talking uh, about isolation. Yes. One out of four adults has no one they can talk to about the things that are most important to them. And another one out of four only has one person if that person goes away, then they're, so it's really half the population experiences some form of pretty big social isolation where they don't feel like they have any kind of web or extended family to fall back on. And that's, that's part of the reason why these resilience circles is important. We, we have to kind of create a new um, place for that. Mm. So it's not just for middle income or poor people, it's for you know, people with uh, wealth, too. And again, you know, most people don't feel sorry for people with wealth. They, it's hardly, you know, a common feeling to have. But there are absolutely unique personal challenges uh, for people with, a, wealthy people with a, a social conscience. We've talked about that well, a little. Yeah, and I tell the story, actually, of some wealthy neighbors coming and joining our this resilience circle, and I'm kind of thinking, wow, why are they here? Or I even ask them, and they said, because this is a moment when people are coming together to help each other, and we don't want to be like the the kid outside the window of the ice cream parlor looking in and seeing everybody having a birthday party. I mean, yeah. it's not that it was all fun, but people understood, they understood that this is this was when people were really connecting with each other in a wholly different way. And, uh, you know, Wealthy people, I see this a lot. People get together and say, well, what do you have a community? Oh, yeah, we have some people. We go out to dinner, and sometimes we go on trips together. Uh, consuming stuff together does not is not the basis of a real community. Helping each other, uh, you know, I'm going to help you shovel your driveway, and you're going to give me some soup on the day that I have to work a long shift. You know, that's the kind of mutual aid and reciprocity that creates real community. And what I, what these folks were saying is, uh, we want to be part of that. Hmm. It, it can be done, I'm sure, but boy, it's going to take a, a lot of thought and, and, you know, effort, I think. And, you know, let's face it, there is, in the last uh, number of years, especially since the, uh, the Occupy Wall Street movement, there's, there's a, a much greater awareness of this 
amazing uh, difference. You know, I remember, uh, you know, I used to draw a graph and, the, it, you know, there was the poorest people on the left-hand side and the wealthiest people on the right-hand side. And there was a fairly big middle, middle ground. Now there's a long, straight uh, uh, level, and then just on the far, far right, there's this, it just shoots up like a rocket. And that's not good for a community. I mean, there's anger, there's resentment on the part of, of hardworking people uh, at at the rich. And I wonder, you say maybe that's an unnecessary barrier to finding new solutions. That's a tough one. That is a yeah. real tough one. You have ideas on that, Chuck Collins? Well, I think you're underscoring something important, which is these extreme inequalities tear communities apart. Yes. Uh, and they pit people against each other, uh, as you said, over the, over the remaining crumbs. And, you know, so I, I think, you know, I mean, if we can go and look at what we did as a society after World War II for an interesting set of clues. Yes. Which, because that was really a period where we made, you know, the wealthy paid substantial taxes, and they those funds were invested in helping build stable communities and a broadening of a middle class. Um, a, a, I should say a white middle class, because unfortunately yes. a lot yes. of those investments left people of color completely uh, out. out. Oh, yeah. Um, but it, it we can do the same thing, which is, okay, we can, for instance, here, here's my one big idea. If I could If I could wave my wand, I would say any young person, wants to do two years of national service, military or mm-hmm. civil civilian service, you mm-hmm. know, build trails, mm-hmm. uh, help build uh, park you know, infrastructure, be a teacher's assistant. There's a lot of work to be done and a lot of young people with tremendous energy to yes. give. Yes. So let's create a national service, military service or civilian service. You do that, you get a debt-free college education. Hmm. And that is paid for by an education fund that is comes from taxes on the very wealthy, an inheritance tax, a steeply progressive inheritance tax that the funds are dedicated to a education legacy trust fund. So what have we done here? We've reduced the concentration of wealth and power. We've generated money to create real access to opportunity. And we're reweaving the social fabric you know, when my dad, who grew up in a wealthy family, went and was in the army and was sharing barracks with with uh, African American men from the South, that was a time when he f- made friends and bridged the racial and class divide. And he will never forget that. Yeah, yeah. That because that rewove that reminded us that we're a we, that we're not just a bunch of hmm. you know, people fighting for parking spots at the mall. You know, <laughs> really. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. And one of the many great things about the New Deal, Franklin Roosevelt's, which included, you know, Civilian Conservation Corps and young people, was that with a lot of people working on a project together, the other person's health and welfare actually mattered to everyone else. We were all in it together in the same boat. And that that really is uh, is a terrific thing. I always find it interesting, Chuck, at how many average income people or less than average income people rush to the defense of the super wealthy. They say, well, they've worked hard. They've earned their fortune. Why shouldn't they be allowed to keep it? For the most obvious example, Americans who are most adversely affected by income inequality go to the mat to defend that very system. 
what, what do you make of this? And it, it baffles me. And how, what do you think? And how might it be changed? Well, on the one hand, I think it shows that we're a very optimistic and aspirational people. No, that's a good Because point. people yeah. sort of imagine themselves being there. But I think we have this very deep cultural myth. Uh, we see the role that the individual plays, you know, getting up early, working hard, whatever right. it is. Right. But we don't see the Commonwealth. Mm. And actually, I have a, a section of this book, Born on Third Base, called Seeing Commonwealth, because we are surrounded by... Uh, previous generations' investments that yes. made the good life to the extent we have a good life possible. And it was paid for by previous generations, and we are the next generation. And uh, that's the Commonwealth. It's the infrastructure. It's the knowledge. It's the foundations. It's all these institutions around us, education institutions, and hospitals built with charitable dollars and tax mm-hmm. dollars. Mm-hmm. We all swim uh, in this ocean of commonwealth and yet we just focus on individual actions like that's the only part of the story right. so i really try to tell some good stories including stories with bill gates's dad and other people how they see come to realize uh you know that we're we're part of this web and that we are our interdependent once you see it once you see that we individually are not are not alone but are part of a society then you start to feel some gratitude and actually an obligation yes. to continue to make that possible for the next generation. And some of that's through paying taxes, and some of that's by being engaged as a dem- in a democratic system, you know, whether it's town meeting or uh, in civic life. Um, and so we, we, yeah, so I think that's, the, and it gets at that myth of I did it alone and I don't owe anything to anybody as opposed to we all are interdependent and we have an obligation to help the next generation. And I'm glad you said that because that is a myth. It never, ever was reality. It simply wasn't. It's a, it's a myth that's used to justify injustice. It's just, and I, I think it's interesting, you know, we, we've talked about, you know, you all heard about the greatest generation. You have a chapter referring to uh, what the federal government did after their Second World War to build a large middle class. You call it the greatest subsidized generation. You know, the GI Bill did a tremendous amount. As you point out, it didn't help people of color, but, uh, you know, investing in our country is good for everybody. It really is. And I wonder if something that might be bringing people together now is uh, not only the uh, the dangers of, of the incredible economic uh, divide, but there's uh, the environment, uh, this uh, global warming. As you point out, the wealthier are in the same boat as everyone else. A tide isn't going to recognize a wealthy person and, oh, uh, no, I'm not going to bother his or her home. Uh, you know, are, are the wealthy people getting involved in that, do you think? Is that a way to build community and, and, and you know, reinforce the reality that we really are in the same boat as everyone? I think it is. You know, I mean, as I go around and I talk to people about, you know, this book, I mean, basically, when I talk to affluent or wealthy audiences, I, I sort of say, look, you know, there is no planet B. No. You're not going to get a rocket ship and go to Elysium or whatever the science fiction movie fantasy is. Uh, there is no wealth on a degraded planet. There is no wealth if the water is contaminated. Yeah. It, it All wealth comes from nature. We like to think it's all 
paper trading on Wall Street, but actually the real foundations of wealth is nature and our health. And so if we degrade that, we have nothing. So here, so we are all in the same boat, which is we have to move quickly, you know, uh, yesterday, yeah. transition to a very different kind of economy. Uh, and we have to reduce our 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 level of consumption and carbon burning right now. Mm-hmm. And we have to power down a bit so that other people can simply have a decent life. Um, so part of it is a self-interested case. And I think that yeah. there's a lot of wealthy people who get that. They're among the early adapters. They're, they're the people who bought the Teslas and the Priuses early on when they were more expensive because they understand, like, okay, I should use my wealth to help, re- help build these new sectors uh, that will be the the leading edge of the economy. Well, education needs to go on. I, we've all seen the uh, big fancy cars, and especially I uh, live in the seacoast of New Hampshire, and sometimes there are amazing yachts pulling up. I mean, just talk about not having a clue about it. What, what, what about, you know, there's some of the programs that were there in the in the 50s the uh, the subsidized generation the GI bill let's face it it's sort of socialistic and that great american socialist dwight david eisenhower uh gave us those and i'm being sarcastic there he was yep. theoretically yep. republican but there was a lot of socialist programs is it not this wealth divide is it not simply a part of capitalism that a few people will have a lot of money while there are many have very little. Is capitalism per se fatally flawed because of this, or or is it really something else, do you think? Well, I kind of think there are different flavors of capitalism. So mm-hmm. the United States has this hyper-extractive capitalism, you know, where we kind of are destroying nature and and degrading communities and workers as fast as possible to to extract wealth to give to a very small number of people. But there are other societies that don't have the same, you know, like I think of the the Nordic countries, which, you know, by the way, there's a there's a there's a terrific new book out called Viking Economics by George Lakey. Yeah. Um, and he sort of debunks a lot of these myths that we have about um you know, the Norway, oh, these are welfare states. You know, the, the Norway has a high floor, a social floor. People don't get, you know, don't become homeless because, you know, they, they got divorced, you know, or something. Sure. Yeah. Um, and he points out that actually the rate of startup businesses and entrepreneurship is much greater in Norway per capita than the United States hmm. because people aren't, they, they're not worried that if they have a great business idea and they fail, they're not going to become destitute. They're going to get, they'll be able to go back to school and get retrained or something. You know, it's not, you know, and there's less stress as a result of that. And, you know, that's an example where, and wealthy people in the Nordic countries, they don't sit around resenting or bad-mouthing government because their kids are getting a free college education too. Uh, And they have a social health insurance. They have less stress. So, you know, once you get back into a virtuous cycle where you say, mm. oh, I don't mind paying my taxes because I get something for it, and my children, and, and, the, and I'm part of a society, and that's what good societies do, we get away. And that's really, the I think, in the post-World War II era, there was a bit of that culture in the United States. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, under under Eisenhower, you didn't see, you know, these huge, organized, anti-tax, anti-government movements, you know. Yeah. Because people, people understood, like, this is what a good society does. 
Yeah, and now people don't see, I mean, what are our tax dollars going for? Weapons that don't do anything and, you know, wars all over the place. It's a good point if we had a different uh, policy. Uh, there's a, a lot to talk about in this book, Born on Third Base. Your book ends with advice to the wealthy on ways that that people can rejoin the other 99% and, as you say, come home. Also advice to those who are not rich. What should we, all of us, what should we be doing to help reduce economic inequality in this country? <laughs> I know that's not an easy well, question or easy quick answer. Well, I, have, I think we need to organize to defend our communities against the excesses of that extractive capitalism that we talked about. Mm. Um, and we, you know, if you have a, a young person in your family and that person is taking on a huge amount of student debt, that's what I mean by extractive. That There's a whole student debt you know, predator industry, yes. uh, credit card industry, uh, people who are nickel and diming you, every bill that you pay mm-hmm. are is taking pickpocketing you. Um, so we have to defend our communities. Um, and I think my message is we have to recognize there are allies in the 1% that could be engaged in those fights if we figure out how to engage them and bring them to the table uh, not at the head of the table giving yeah. directions, but uh-huh, uh, you know, uh-huh. as part of the team, uh, playing playing their part in the in the in the in the in the movement, and um, just being part. You know, of the so team. I do think, you know, this election is obviously both very important, but it's also a huge distraction from the longer term work that we need to do, uh, which is to build strong local organizations, uh, not necessarily in the in a political party, but just form associations that can advocate, engage with candidates, hold them accountable. And I think pick, pick, you know, I think the issue of student debt, I think the issue of climate, climate change, I think there's three or four things that actually can bring a lot of people together uh, where I think in the next two years, we're going to see some very powerful social movements, you know, arising to address these imbalances and I think we'll all have to figure out where we plug into those and how we can help nurture and encourage them. But I think if there's a movement of young people who really are trying to tackle the issue of student debt, we should do everything we can to help those young people. We are not powerless. We can do something about it, and, and it is starting to happen. And uh, as you say, it's got to be done yesterday. There's, there's really no choice on this if we want to have anything left of our democracy, of our Republican form of government. Very good book, very important book, Born on Third Base. A one percenter makes the case for tackling inequality, bringing the wealth home, and committing to the common good. Chuck Collins, always a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks so much for being Thanks with us. Thanks for having me, Bert. All right, thank you. It's about money.